Frank Wiles is the president of the Django Software Foundation and is a partner at Revolution Systems, a company that specializes in support, scalability, and development using open source software. Frank, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks a lot. You are from Lawrence, Kansas, which is where Django came from. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't typically think of that as a place where a widely adopted web framework would come from. Can you tell the story of how Django evolved from a newspaper office in Lawrence, Kansas? Sure. Um, So uh, you'd be surprised at how many uh, open source people um, came from the Midwest and ended up moving out to kind of the tech centers of the world for jobs uh, as open source became popular. Um, When I started with the World Company, which was the company that uh, created and, and released Django, uh, we were running a cable modem operation um, for the city of Lawrence, which was the second city in the U.S. to have cable modems. And we were always under fairly serious budget constraints. So trying to use commercial Unix, trying to use Microsoft Exchange or something like that to provide email for 20,000, 30,000 people just wasn't possible to do, right, and, and be profitable. So we were early adopters of open source. So when... We started getting into web development for the newspaper and, and, and other kind of technological aspects to the company as, as things moved along. We pushed more and more open source into the business because we preferred to use it and it was cheaper and so it was an easy sell. And so when we came up with something internally that we thought worked really well, open sourcing it was not as foreign of a concept to that company as, as it might have been for other companies. Okay, that makes that makes sense. Um can you give a little more color about Django and talk about how your career evolved relative to the evolution of Django? So it's actually kind of funny. Um, when Django was being used, um, I had stopped being primarily involved with putting the newspaper online, which was the part of the company where Django was coming from. I was a Perl developer and uh, I, I thought Python was fine. I didn't particularly have a problem with it. I just didn't, at that point, Perl was what you used for web development uh, or maybe PHP. But at that point in time, there, you, know, you didn't use Python for web development. It just wasn't really done. And so when the guys were building something with Python, I, I just kind of you know, wasn't that interested in it. But when they wanted to open source it, I was all for that because I, you know, there's, there's no reason to not open source it, in, in my opinion. Yeah. So I helped argue to get it open sourced and kind of, I spoke suit better than, than everybody else. And I could, you know, uh, go back and forth with the lawyer on what license and why. And, and uh, so fast forward a few years and I leave the company to start doing Perl and Postgres consulting end up sharing an office with Jacob Kaplan Moss, um, who was working at that point for a different company when he, uh, when the Django software foundation was formed. And so I got asked to write a little article for Linux pro magazine about Django and the Django software foundation, which needed to have a kind of quick intro to Django. So I was like, Oh crap. Now I got to learn Python and Django real quick so I can write this article. And uh, then interview my friend and office mate. Uh, so after I did that, I was like, wow, I really like Python and Django. This is really so much better than the tools I'm using in the Perl world. Uh, so I, when he decided to leave the company that he was working for, I 
lobbied very hard to uh, get him to join forces with me and turn Revsys into, you know, Django-focused as opposed to Pearl-focused. Mm, okay. So, so it's funny that, you know, this meeting years ago where I didn't, you know, have a particularly big stake in to get Django open source ended up being the focus of my career. Yeah, it's funny how those things turn out. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Django in more detail. What is your elevator pitch for what Django is? Um, the, the the quick, easy answer for any type of web framework, and Django follows this same kind of deal, is it, it makes it easier and faster to build something and get it out there, get it working and get it out there. A lot of frameworks, however end up getting in your way and you have to throw everything away and start over as you scale, for example. Django is really great in that you can replace bits and pieces as you go with faster bits and pieces if necessary without having to throw everything away and start over. So it's great for prototyping something together and it makes it, you know, it's a very smooth path to ridiculous scale without a lot of, okay, we've got to just stop using Python and Django and start using Go or something like that, right? There's a very smooth uh, path okay. from from small, I just did this in my basement for fun, to Instagram. There's a pretty easy path there if you know what you're doing and you know and you replace certain slower aspects with a little bit faster code here and there, you can get a lot of mileage out of it without having to ever kind of stop what you're doing and do a rewrite. So, okay, so you're talking about this interesting um, kind of gradient of trade-offs between Django and other frameworks, um, you know, maybe on the axis of, of scalability and um, prototypability and, and other things. On Software Engineering Daily, we've done some shows about Ruby on Rails. We've done some shows about JavaScript frameworks. We haven't done any shows about Django. Um and you know, it's, it sounds like the, the idea the idea that you're discussing of this scalability is almost independent of the idea of Django as a um, as a framework that is coupled to Python. So um, maybe you can tell me whether this is true, and you can describe some components of the Django framework and how they compare to these other frameworks that have maybe less scalability. Sure, um, it's it's. Not because it's it's not independent of Python. Python is definitely you know uh, necessary. It, it would be hard to scale Rails without being able to scale Ruby to some degree, right? Um, what I was what I was trying to say there was that you know with a lot of web frameworks, if you decide ah I don't like their authentication piece, I need to replace it with a different authentication piece. You have to replace the whole framework. Right. Or if you decide I don't want to use their template system, I have to use a different framework or I don't want to use their ORM. I have to throw everything else away and use a whole different framework to get this other ORM for whatever piece. With Django, you can replace almost all of Django each bit independently and still keep the other bits. So in one of the more recent versions of Django, um, we now support pluggable template engines. So you can you don't have to use Django templates with Django. You can use different template engines. Um, you lose some support of third-party apps, uh, but it's possible to do and might be useful at scale. 
Some of the listeners are new programmers, and they may be looking to get started mm-hmm. with their first web application. They've, you know, maybe they've just written a Hello World application on the console, and they want to get started with web development. What are the trade-offs for a new programmer in the onboarding process? Like, if they're getting started with their first web app, how does that compare? You know, if they use Django versus something like Rails or Express, or you know. For the for the very early beginner, what should they be assessing? Um, I, you know, I think for a beginner, it almost doesn't matter which framework they use as long as they use a framework. They're they're being thrown in the deep end, right? It's not just about the language or the framework; it's about understanding HTTP and CSS and cookies and you know, HTML. There's so many things. I think that's one of the problems with kind of learning to be a developer these days is you can't, there is, hello world is complicated, right? Um, It used to be that hello world was literally print hello world in almost every language. (laughs) Uh, Now it's print, what's this left bracket HTML thing? Yeah, or or make a to-do list. Right, make it to that's the to do list app, and it's like okay, now I've got databases involved, and maybe some SQL, or what's a table, and why are they talking about this key thing? And yeah, there's just so many things. It's it's got to be very frustrating. To I'm glad I came up into development when I did. Um, <laughs> so you know, I think all of those um, you know Rails, um, uh, you know Express, Django, those specifically. You know, I think any of those are a decent choice for somebody to pick these days. I think that if you're going to if you're looking for employment, uh, Rails and Django would probably be a better option uh, for kind of smooth path to job than Express just in terms of you know demand out there. But uh, I think that the fact that Python is useful on its own much more outside of web development makes the python django combination more appealing right mm. no there's not a lot of there's not a lot of hardcore data science happening with ruby right that's absolutely true you know what i mean there's nobody's doing natural language processing work with you know node yeah or yeah it was why why is that well i think it's partly because python came to web development late python was really you know already heavily used in scientific computing because it's a very easy and approachable language. You know, there's a reason that so many places are using Python as their first language at CS schools because it the syntax doesn't get in your in the way of your understanding of programming concepts. So, so are you suggesting mm-hmm. that that Ruby, for example, maybe the language ex- itself got perturbed by the fact that there was a popular web framework? No, no, I don't. I don't mean that. I mean that just you know, code versus code for for a simple command line application, people tend to understand the Python faster, just the syntax faster mm-hmm. than Rails or Java script or. Perl or anything else, right? Right. The, just the syntax, you know, they, they, they people joke that Python is executable pseudocode, right? You're saying like, oh, do this thing and then print this and add these two <laughs> things. You know, I mean, it's, and Rails is, you know, Ruby is not far off. Um, it, it's not, you know, 
it's not uh, assembly or something, you know, COBOL, something very foreign to people. It's, it's, you know, it's closer than a lot of languages have been in the past. It's just that Python was that little bit closer and started to be used in scientific computing before, you know, people were into web development that much. And so it had a foothold there and linguists wanted to do stuff with, you know, um, computing. And so they were starting to do things in languages like Perl and Python uh, because they weren't programmers by trade. They didn't want to do things in C and Java, right? So they were looking for an easier language to work with, and the performance of those weren't as crucial, right? I could run my linguistics test on my desktop computer at work and then go home for the night, and if it was done by the time I got home, cool, right? It didn't, you know, the performance wasn't as, uh, as crucial. So those things already had this foothold in this huge community, and then Django came along and web development started to get popular. And, uh, you know, then so you have the best of kind of all worlds where Ruby really got popular because of Rails. Right. Right. It's it's funny how these different uh, languages and paradigms build compound interest based on the types of groups that are using them. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, so my first web applications were written in Rails. And more recently, I'm doing full stack JavaScript stuff. And I find that some of the things that Rails took care of for me have to be handled more explicitly in Express.js. And I haven't haven't written any big Django applications. Mm -hmm. But as I read about Django, it sounds like the requirement to be explicit, like that, I, that idea that that uh, you know, I'm I'm having to tackle in writing full stack JavaScript stuff. That's you know, like having to know what's going on in terms of routing, for example, or, or middleware. Um, you know, that, so that's more stressed in in full stack JavaScript. And my my impression is that that's the case in Django, also, like more so than Rails. This this uh, overarching need to understand what is going on a little better and to be more explicit about things. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think that's mostly accurate. Um, I think the difference um, between a kind of uh, all-encompassing framework uh, like Django or Rails and something more like Express, Express is closer to something like in the Python world like Flask. It provides these aspects of web development for you. And then you're expected to use other libraries as you see fit um, and kind of piece together your own system. And that's one way people like to build things. That's very common to how we built things with Perl and early web development. Like I like this database library and I like this template engine and I want to use this email library and I stitch them together with a little bit of my own code and we're off to the races. And the JavaScript world is still kind of going through that. Um, you know, every, it seems like every couple of weeks, there's a different grunt gulp webpack something coming out. That's the new current. Awesome. Right. Um, and I think that community is still kind of, you know, narrowing down their choices to, you know, the two or three best versions. I think that the difference between rails and Django is, is a little more subtle. Um, Django gives you really great defaults. Um, for kind of your average web application out of the box, your your new user doesn't even know doesn't even need to know that middleware exists, right? To get their job done, they need to understand that middleware exists 
you know, when they go to turn on authentication or something like that. Um, but it's easy to trace from here comes my web request through my middleware. Ah, this makes sense how this works. There's no magic there. And I think that it's really hard to trace through a Rails app and, and you know, and not get sidetracked by like, I don't understand why this does that. Like there's no, mm. you know, you can, anytime I get confused about Django, uh, even when I was first learning Django and Python, I could open up the source to Django and go, oh, I see what they're doing there. Okay, that makes sense. And move right along. Um, I don't think that that's true in a Rails world. So, you know, you mentioned Flask. How does Django compare to the other Python frameworks like Flask? There's also Pylons. Mm-hmm. There's there's several. There's Bottle. There's Falcon. There's right. all sorts of little micro frameworks. There's, you know, there's there's a lot of them. In terms of market and mind share, Django wins. You know, I don't know, 70, 75 plus percent of the Python world uh, when it comes to, you know, just like Rails dominates in, in a Ruby world um, and Express dominates in a JavaScript world. Right. Um, there are others. People use them for different purposes. Um, a lot of times the reason somebody picks uh, Flask, uh, for example, is that they don't want to have to they, they don't want to feel overwhelmed by all the options that Django brings, they have a very small feature set that they want to implement and they kind of, they want to understand that explicitness and they want to have less of them, less of that to explore. Um, and sometimes it's for performance. Um, I wrote a, an article last, uh, this time last year about like, you know, at what point do you have to get rid of Python, right? Uh, what, you know, what level of scale? And it turned out that, you know, if I replaced Python with PyPy, and I replaced Django with Falcon, um, I could get a ridiculous amount of performance um, and still be doing Python, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so there are aspects, you know, if I was working on, um, um, you know, a system like, uh, what would be a good example, like Twilio, you know, you're receiving tons and tons of API requests. Django might not be the best system for that. Um, it wouldn't be a bad choice. It just may not be the most performant, fastest choice. And if part of your app's need is, you know, to turn that request around as fast as possible to not have much delay on the phone side of things, then you might not want to use Python. You might not want to use Django. But for most every scenario, it's fine. So I want to get to talking about some other Python stuff eventually, but uh, we have some listener questions uh, about Django and Python. Mm -hmm. Um, And these these questions were taken from the Software Engineering Daily Slack channel. So if anybody is curious, they can join uh, on the website, softwareengineeringdaily.com, and can ask questions for similar uh, shows. So the first question is from Srinify. Uh, he asks, what is Django's philosophy on asynchronous or event-based programming? So uh, this has been one of those things that um, Django has not done a particularly amazing job at. Um, there are ways to do it, um, typically involving um, 
a Python system called Celery and using event-driven um, uh, WSGI processes like G-Event. So the idea is that, you know, a request comes in, you fire off a task into an async pool, workers do the work, and then the results are returned, right? Um, there's actually um, the Mozilla Foundation just um, granted uh, Django uh, 150000 I believe, uh, dollars um, towards uh, Andrew Godwin, who's one of the core contributors to Django, uh, to build a, a system and rebuild basically some of the internals of Django to support a very async flow. Um, the concept of revolves around channels. Um, there's some information online. I don't have the link handy, but if you search for uh, Django uh, channels, you should be able to find uh, Andrew talking about uh, the ideas around what he's what he's going to do to Django's internals to make that more of a kind of first class citizen in the Django world. Very interesting. Um, so Serenify also asks, what architectural decisions would you make differently if Django were started today? Um, that's interesting. Um, so you know, one of the harder things about open source code as it gets popular is the kind of long-term maintainability issues, backwards compatibility issues. Um, if, if I was overlord of the Django ecosystem, um, <laughs> there is definitely some aspects of how the template system works that I would change. Uh, for example, the guys, uh, the original guys who worked on Django were uh, PHP developers. And so all of the date-time string formatting is not kind of standard STRF time. It's PHP's um, string formatting. And that has mm -hmm. been just kept through. And it's the one thing about Django that is PHP-like. And it's very out of place uh, with, with the rest of everything. So that's one small kind of personal annoyance. Um, the... The other main thing, I guess, that I would have done differently is um, is around, and this is a personal thing mostly, it's uh, I would have had more of a focus on the enterprise than the beginner. But I think that for the health of the project and the popularity of the project, they made the right decision. That's what I would have done differently, and I probably wouldn't be uh, in charge of a uh, foundation around that project because nobody would have used it. I would have been more concerned about performance, too concerned about performance. Um, mm. So, you know, I might not be the best person to start a new project like that, that because I'm such a performance nerd. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so uh, another listener from the Slack room is Tobias Macy, who is the host of podcast.init which is a show about Python. So Tobias asks, how will HTTP2 affect the WSGI standard and how does Django plan to adapt to newer web standards? Um, I think that a lot of adapting to a web standard is typically more about individual developers and projects, you know, taking on that, you know, there's not much tends to change about HTTP itself. Uh, in this case, you know, he's talking about HTTP2, and so things do change. Um, 
I don't really see those as huge barriers, right? You know, we've had a lot of, uh, of change over the, the 10 years of uh, Django. And, you know, JavaScript went from being something very small in your stack to being something very large in your stack. Um, the, we went from Python 2 to Python 3. There's been some really huge changes, and Django has gone through them very, very easily, honestly. Um, so I don't, I don't foresee any problems um, I, I think that it's more of a Django and the community will respond to the, that change at the same speed or maybe even a little faster than everyone else online, right? As, mm. as it becomes popular with users and browsers and is, is supported everywhere, I think that you will see you know, Django start moving towards supporting those features in, in cleaner, easier ways. Yep, definitely. So... Let's uh, gradually shift our conversation. You're you're the president of the Django Software Foundation. What are the goals of the Django Software Foundation? So the 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 main purpose of the Software Foundation is to hold the intellectual property of Django, right? To hold the copyright, hold the trademark, um, and uh, support the Django community. Some ways that that's happened early on was just simple things like um, you know giving some money to support a meetup in a particular town on a particular day, buy the pizza for a, a hack day, um, things like that. Uh, help, you know, core members of a, of a Python community, of the Django community, get to a particular conference. You know, perhaps they live in another country and it's difficult for them to, to get here to present their important information at DjangoCon, maybe the, the DSF helps cover their airfare or something. Um, recently, in the last couple of years, though, uh, there's been more of an emphasis on helping kind of Django itself a little more directly. Uh, they brought on a, uh, a fundraising manager, and they've been raising a lot more money and have been paying, actually, full-time, uh, part-time and full-time developers to work on Django specifically. And that's been actually really successful. Hmm. Are there any interesting problems in managing that? Um, I think that, you know, I haven't been directly involved, so I'm, I'm hearing things secondhand on, on that. I think, honestly, the biggest problem is the community perception of it. I think that there are a lot of people in the open source world that thinks the minute you mix money and open source, it all goes to shit. And I just don't think that's true. I think that, you know, uh, Red Hat is doing, you know, as good a work as it today as it was doing when it barely made money. Yeah. And Red Hat is like the base case for this entire gigantic industry of other companies following in similar models mm -hmm. like Cloudera, Rokana, Confluent. Uh, I can isn't Atlassian. There's so many places that Atlassian yeah, isn't in, NPM is even a company. right? Yeah. Now. Yeah. And like my company, RevSys, you know, we, we, we make all of our money off of open source, not selling it directly to anyone, but, you know, off the, off the sidelines of, of open source. And I don't think that any of those things have corrupted open source anyway. Does the possibility exist that those things could? Sure. You know, could it be a waste of money? I, I could see situations where, you know, maybe you end up just paying a hotshot developer to, you know, f 
to work on stuff and he maybe doesn't get anything done. That's not the case with what the DSF is doing, but I mean, I can see people's concern. I just don't think it's a very founded concern. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's, I mean, let's, let's talk more about revolution systems um, or as you've called it rev sys. So one of your specialties is Django consulting. Mm -hmm. Tell me about a Django problem that someone came to you with recently that required a nuanced understanding of Django to solve? Um, so the it's actually a fairly common problem for us, and that is you're a company with 10 or more developers, and you are using another stack, or you're using a hodgepodge of five or six stacks with different legacy issues, and you've decided as a company that you've looked at the landscape, you've looked at Rails, you've looked at you know, Node, you've looked at PHP frameworks, and you've decided that Python and Django is the way that you want to go, and you're going to standardize on that going forward. Making that transition as a as an organization is difficult. Mm. And so a lot of times, a lot of what we're doing is, okay, well, which piece is both a good first project for these guys uh, that can show off Django kind of sell the team on that this is they did make the right decision, but is complicated enough they don't feel like it's a hello world project. Which of their pieces of infrastructure, you know, their current system, can we replace with Django first? And then you know, here's the path to replacing the other pieces and hold their hand while they go through that for the first three six months of that transition. What is a common way in which you see? companies architecting their Django applications suboptimally? Well, a lot of times um, they it's it's not even a necessarily a Django thing. It's uh, it's their it's a legacy mindset, right? They write Python mm. like it's Java. They um, they look for they look and worry about tooling and problems that existed in their own old ecosystem that just simply don't exist in the new ecosystem that they're in. Um, and then a lot of, and this is, I think, true in almost no matter what, uh, people tend to want to uh, design their own databases, their own schemas, and they don't do a particularly good job at it. They think they are, but they don't actually do a particularly good job at it. And so they want to wrestle away from doing it the Django way. Um, and they, so they, they want to name their own t tables. They want to name the fields specifically because that's what they've done in their previous projects. And, and it just it does, it's just simply not a big issue in Django and they think it is. And they think that this was like the one thing they didn't like about Django. And it's the, it's just a, a waste of their time and it's counterproductive. And it's very hard sometimes to convince somebody that it really doesn't matter what the name of that table is. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I mean, we'll talk about DevOps a little bit eventually, but uh, this sounds like you're saying there are cultural shifts that people need to make or, or maybe, maybe, maybe it's not cultural as much as behavioral shifts. Yeah. So, I mean, like if, um, you know, when I'm uh, the, the the problems I need to worry about when I am walking a street in Somalia are much different 
than the problems I need to worry about when I'm walking the street in Fargo, North Dakota. Right. Yeah. You know, um, and so when I've totally changed my environment to be worried about IEDs going off in Fargo is silly, really. <laughs> it, it's really silly. And uh, I can understand you, know, you were just in a, you know, you were just in a war zone and you had these particular problems. Now you're in a different place and, and your biggest problem is there's no in and out or, you know, I mean, there's there's <laughs> there's 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 other problems. It's, it's I'm not saying that, you know, that Django has no problems. There are you know, challenges you will face, but people hold on to those old challenges because that's what they know and they're used to. And it's a very common human concept, right? Uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And, and they, they, inst- they spend a lot of time trying to, you know, having to be convinced that those things are not it really issues. And that I swear you're not, even at stale, that's not going to matter. Trust me, I've been there. This just doesn't matter. And, and they don't. They, they think they know better. And that's fine. I mean, I, like I said, it's a, it's a very normal human nature to kind of cling on to old patterns. Um, that's why quitting smoking is hard. Or, you know, if you're an addict of any kind, like the patterns of where and when and all that stuff, you know, you, I, I go to the same place for coffee every morning. And it's weird when I travel and I don't get to go to that same coffee shop. And, you know, like I get that it's uncomfortable, but you have to realize you've totally changed countries. Mm-hmm. And and the laws are different, and some things matter, and some things don't. Yeah, um, and and I mean, you you talked about this some in a uh, in a talk about DevOps that you gave. Uh, although you were talking about DevOps, I think that this applies in this situation when you get people who can be extremely rigid or dogmatic about certain things just because they're used to a certain paradigm and so and you know you're talking you said be spiritual not a fundamentalist mm-hmm. um so yeah i think that's that's broadly applicable but you, yeah we, we sometimes uh, my business partner and i talk about the difference between like you know agile is good but we talk about like little a agile you know not big a agile uh, where big A agile is like you have the manifesto taped to the side of your monitor and like, well, this doesn't fit one of these rules. Um, you know, it's kind of like the people who argue that, you know, parking violations aren't in the Constitution, so they're not legal. Um, it's, a, you know, it's like, OK, um, you know, you don't you don't really right. know what you're talking about, but like you you only believe what's in the Constitution. OK, uh, but, you know, like don't be so rigid in, in your, in your kind of methodologies and, and beliefs and, in, in whatever ecosystem you're in. Um, everybody's got to be a little bit flexible because just that rigidity doesn't, doesn't work. The only thing that we do as technologists that are rigid is that, you know, the compiler is not going to take a syntax error, you know, like, I mean, there's very yeah. little else that needs to really be rigid. And, you know, I would prefer if everybody's, you know, over the wire protocols were rigid about, you know, uh, what they sent and received. But we live in the real world and it's not going to happen. So I don't stress about it. Um. Yeah, well, it is nice in software that we do have those certain things, certain rules that we are bound by protocols, compilers, whatever, Mm -hmm. like these things are immutable. So we can mutate everything else. Yeah. So before we get to talking about the more fungible aspects of this conversation like devops um you know you mentioned scalability a bit what are the scalability bottlenecks that people often encounter in django applications are there 
is is it does this come back to this cultural or behavioral discussion or are there are there actual like, like Rails, for example. So, so, so I, I, you know, you hear people say Ruby on Rails doesn't scale, and they refer to Twitter moving away from Rails. And as I understand, this was due to problems with the ORM not being a good interface between application logic and data. Um, so, I'm curious if there's any things you can pinpoint about scalability that happen in Django applications. So, it's always going to be your data store. And it doesn't matter if it's Rails, PHP, whatever. It, your, your slowness is going to be your data store, right? And the safety around your data store. So if you're using a you know Postgres or MySQL database, you're trading off some performance for safety and for a particular way of accessing your data. If so, I, I would I would argue that. Twitter moving away from Rails was not so much about Twitter removing the ORM of, uh, you know, the active record ORM as it was their ridiculous growth and their data input patterns and access patterns lended itself to using Cassandra and other NoSQL stores more than it did using a relational store. And so at that point, you lose a lot of what makes Rails useful if you're not going to be able, if you're not going to be using active record, you know, using Rails. I don't think that that's why they got rid of Rails. It was, you know, was because the ORM was slow. It was that they couldn't use, you know, a relational database to hold their data anymore in a, mm-hmm. in a sane way. And I think that happens in one form or another to everyone who scales ridiculously large. Yeah. Right. You, you know, when you do a Google search, they are not doing select star from all web pages where, <laughs> you know, um, that you it, don't know that I, I, I would I would bet a lot of money that that is not what's happening. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, you know, the limit 10. Yeah. Limit 10. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> The uh, so it, a lot of what people they, they they focus in on parts that they can more easily change. I think is one of the problems people have in scaling in general, as opposed to what is going to make the most impact. So they worry. Ah, I hear that um, Node is ten percent faster than Python, so I'm going to move everything to Node. And what they find is that they're still using the same data store. And so their request, which was taking 100 milliseconds before, is now taking 93 milliseconds. And no one cares that it's 7 milliseconds faster. Because what they didn't look at was the fact that 92 milliseconds of that 100 milliseconds was in the database. Mm. Right? So they're, they're worrying about the wrong parts. They're worrying about parts that they, they find interesting to change and not the parts that really matter. People... You know, the whole concept around, you know, in scalability and performance is do less work. That's the only thing you can do, right? We're every, at the very core of what we're doing here. We're limited by physics, right? You can get a little faster processor and you can get a little faster network and those things help. Absolutely. But, you know, at the end of the day, the only way you can do an operation truly faster is to do less steps in it, do less work uh, or move work out of the request response cycle. So for things like leaderboards, people want like, well, 
We need to have up to the minute accurate data. No, you don't. Even something as simple as caching it for 10 seconds, right, can take away a ton of work in your system. And no one, no one is going to notice 10 seconds of caching, right? Like I got, I scored some new points. Why didn't I move from fourth to third? Huh? Refresh the page. Ca- the cache is already busted and it's there now. And they, you know, <laughs> no one's going to notice that sort of level of caching. But that can reduce infrastructure costs, huge, tons and tons and tons of money at scale. Right. Yeah, I remember uh, learning. The, I took the software engineering class in college, and one of the first things we learned was was uh just the importance of caching and then it was just like reiterated and beaten into our heads in that software engineering and class. people still don't do it and people still don't do it yeah, yeah. well yeah it's, it's it's an interesting interesting concept um so at revsys what have you learned about managing software projects Oh, well, that's one of those things that I don't think you, you know, it's like a book. You're never really done. Um, <laughs> uh, every project is a little different, you know, because you have different humans involved. And I think that one thing that programmers and software developers don't focus enough on that they should, if they really want to get better at their craft, it's not about learning, always about learning the next new technical thing and knowing everything about their framework without having to reference the documentation. Um, you know, I'm, I'm the president of the Django Software Foundation, and I read the Django docs every single day. Every single day. I don't have all that stuff memorized. There's just no point. But what I do focus on is understanding people and communication. That will boost your career so much that it, it's, it's not even funny. Being better at communicating what you're wanting to do and why you think your idea is better being able to realize, you know, I think this is what they mean, but before I go spend two days writing the code, I'm going to go and have a quick conversation with them and make sure I understand exactly what they want. Um, you know, setting expectations and giving people, you know, status reports. Um, just because you committed something to GitHub and that they could go look and see that there was a commit doesn't necessarily mean they did. And they still may be going, well, where is Bob on that project? I have no idea what's going on. I wish he would tell me something. You know, are there any communication anti patterns that you see programmers, you know, chronically engaging in that they could amend? Yeah, I think that uh, this is I I had a boss years ago that uh, gave me a bit of advice and and I I try to do it. And is that you should never say no. Um, You know, if you're working at a company and somebody comes in and says, we need to add OAuth support to this and, and you just know it, it may be a horrible idea. Um, it may be technologically infeasible, you know, and, and complicated. You could say, well, we could do that, but um, programmers have a really bad reputation of being naysayers and we shouldn't do that. That'll never work. It'll never scale. No, 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 no. Um, be a little more, we could do that, but it's going to cost you a million dollars. Then let them decide, is it worth it to them? Because a lot of times we, you know, developers are down in the trenches and don't understand the business aspects at play. And it may be that 
looks ridiculous to us to spend a million dollars to get that thing, but it brings in a $10 million contract. And now all of a sudden that's a no brainer. And so asking why somebody wants something is important as well, right? Understanding the motivation of why you're working on this particular ticket um, is if, if for no other reason gives you something to talk about when you go home and your family says, what did you do last week? Oh, well, I really saved this, you know, contract or I helped our biggest customer do this thing they've been wanting to do for a really long time. Not I added OAuth2 support to an API. Right. Okay. Interesting. I think, you know, this emphasis on communication uh, dovetails nicely into talking about DevOps. You gave a talk several months ago about how to get to DevOps nirvana. Mm-hmm. Can you can you tell me what an organization looks like once it achieves DevOps nirvana? Um, it's, it's that there is very little friction between... I've written some code to it's being tested. Stakeholders are playing with it in a staging environment to it's in production. There's no one's getting woken up in the middle of the night on a regular basis because of problems. Um, Outages are rare. Alerts are rare. Uh, Alerts that wake you up are even rarer. Um, You know, that it's, it's, you know, flows seamlessly, seems effortless. It's the difference between uh, when I pretend to be a ninja at Halloween versus looking at a Shaolin monk doing Kung Fu, right? Mm. I look funny and, you know, silly pretending to be a ninja and a Shaolin monk makes it look effortless. Right. You know, there's the work has been done and it's perfected in a way that it just everything moves very smoothly. So and, and in terms of how you actually get there, mm-hmm. there's you know, you had some tactics that that made a lot of sense to me. You had a slide where you emphasized the need to apply a quote metrics mentality to everything. Mm-hmm. So in your work at Revsys or perhaps elsewhere, how have you applied a metrics mentality to to I don't know, maybe you have something that's that wasn't an obvious target for metrics driven analysis? Um, I've I've done a, a bit of work in this. It's so this tends to be stuff that we do with a client more than of ourselves, uh, because each of our projects is so different. You know, if we had if I worked for Twitter, you know, there would be a very kind of set level of metrics of what we wanted to be able to see and, and things that we look at um, and that wouldn't change much. But a lot of times our projects are one month long. And so we're encouraging a customer to implement these particular metrics because we think that will show them inf- interesting information. Um, one thing that I've done is um, I look at uh, that there was a surprising number and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head. I'd have to go look them up, but is uh, new client inquiries to us versus the number of times I tweet. Hmm. Not even about what I tweet, just the number of times, right? Which I found interesting. It was not so much that I was giving out amazing technological insight. It might, I could be talking about my kids or today I tweeted out about, you know, how it's warm here in Kansas for unseasonably warm for it being December. Um, the more I tweeted, the more sales calls we got. Uh, which I found very interesting. And that's not a metric 
that I think that I, I would have thought to correlate together. Yeah, same here. I mean, maybe Software Engineering Daily should start tweeting more. Yeah. We only tweet about like episodes because I'm just like I don't want to. I don't want, ever want anybody to unfollow us from for tweeting too much. Yeah. Perhaps we don't tweet enough. Exactly. And so that's one of those things that I was kind of under the same. I don't want to annoy him, but I need to have something important to say. Um, right. And then you know, then I would realize that there's this guy I follow, and he's got three and a half million followers, and and he just tweeted about what he had for lunch, and I'm just like, huh. And it's the you know hmm. the thing with. Twitter, I think a lot of developers treat it like it's RSS, and it's not. Um, I pull out my Twitter client, and I scan through it a couple times a day, depending on what's going on, uh, and look for something interesting. And I don't try to catch up to every tweet that's gone through my feed over the last 72 hours because I unplugged. Um, I just look at the last couple of pages till I get bored, and then I go and do something else. So the fact that that person's name popped up, at all, be like, hey, why do I follow him? And you look, oh yeah, he's the guy that did blah. Um, let me see what else he's tweeted about recently. And I think it drives just kind of, you know, it's uh, touch points. It's number of times of engagement. Marketers talk about how a lot of times with brands that you have to see the brand three or four times before you engage with it, before you consider it a trusted brand. The No matter how good that first ad is, you won't just go buy their thing until you've seen it elsewhere mentioned a couple of times. And I think the same thing is kind of true about kind of personal brands. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I, I think that's really interesting that this idea of a metrics mentality can lead to surfacing, um, you know, surfacing aspects of your organization that you didn't know mm -hmm. would exist. Um, <clears throat> and I think, uh, Another dimension of getting to this metrics mentality in practice is logging properly. And, you know, you mentioned logging in your discussion. Logging is really important to a healthy DevOps environment. What are some best practices around logging, especially in a scaling organization? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think one thing is that, you know, it's, it's beneficial to use structured logging. Um, so that you're not just, you know, it's not just a string of text and a timestamp, um, that it's, you know, say like a JSON document that has several pieces of information to it, which user was doing this, you know, the timestamp, obviously, what system did it come from? You know, if you're an AWS, you know, what availability zone did that request originate in? And, you know, uh, whatever information you can, you, you can shove in there that's kind of ancillary to the new user signed up piece that is the heart of that log message. Um, that, that's always a good thing to have, you know, there's, you almost can't log too much information. Sure, at a Twitter scale or a Facebook scale, you probably end up pairing back information simply for storage and processing reasons, right? Um, but as you get started, storing logs is cheap. Right. Like, you know, if, if you generate 10 gigs a day, you know, at the end of the year, you're paying 400 bucks a month in S3 costs. And that assumes you're not compressing them. Yeah. Right. Like for an organization, that's nothing. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, don't you know, it's not the, the logs are should be built in a way that you have to use software to consume them. I think a lot of times, a lot of, especially me and old school people, like we're used to like, well, I, that's a lot of information to scroll by when I tail that file. 
and but you're not tailing that file anymore, right? <laughs> you're pushing it off into a system and you can slice and dice and query. And the more information you have, the better. And the the ability to go back and process old logs to see if an assumption is true is often useful. What would have happened had we, you know, changed this nine months ago? Let's run through the logs and look for the relevant pieces. And how often would that have happened? Mm. A lot of times, you know, we were talking about it in organizations and metrics. And I, I made I've made some uh, some comments in the past about like, yeah, you should track, you know, your coffee consumption and was it decaf or, you know, French press. And I, I, I say that mostly jokingly that, you know, that's a little bit too much of a too much detail. But if, if you have that kind of level of information, you can go back and say, you know, we've got this policy that's maybe an HR policy. But how many times did it actually did we actually end up having to enforce it last year? Maybe we don't need that policy anymore. Right. right, like the, you know, the importance of being able to do a retrospective. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have enough information, you're just guessing again, right? Like you're, you, you, we have to guess about the future. We shouldn't have to guess about what would have happened in the past, right? Yeah, that's very true. So I know our time draws near. Um, so, do you have anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah. So um, I'm. We're currently actually working on a new product that's actually about logging. Um, it's called Spectrum. You can uh, sign up for the early access to the beta at devspectrum.com. Uh, it's D-E-V spectrum.com. Um, what it is is there's all these great tools for looking at logging once you're in production. You know, there's the ELK stack. There's services like Logly. There's CloudWatch. There's all these different things that are great for slicing and dicing your logs from production. But there's really nothing for the developer, right? The best we have is like tailing a file. Um, so Spectrum is a app that you run locally that you can fire your logs into that lets you show and hide logs and filter logs, much like you would with a, a SaaS product or the ELK stack, uh, but doesn't have any emphasis on storage and retention. It's really about the code I'm working on right now, this one development iteration. And um, we found it to be really useful um, to both make our development go faster and find bugs faster, but also to have all that proper logging already set up for when you do go to production. Well, that's great. Well, we will put it in the show notes. And um, thanks for coming on, Frank Wiles. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. Great. Thanks for having me.